This is the Level Up Your Wedding Business podcast, and I'm your host, Taylor Petrinovich. I'm a wedding cinematographer based in California, and I have grown my own business over the past five years to serving amazing clients, charging five-figure prices. At the core of the show, I want you to feel inspired to take your own business to that next level, whatever that looks like for you. And I'm here to give you the tools and practical advice to help you along the way. So let's go. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you are a wedding filmmaker or a creative within the wedding industry who is interested in leveling up their business. That's what this podcast is called, after all. And if you're looking to improve, further your career, or reach new levels of the market, I'm sure branding is something that you have considered spending some time on as well. And even though having a really strong logo, fonts, colors, and website are all very, very important pieces of the branding puzzle, today's episode is about one piece of the puzzle that often goes unthought about. Today's guest is Andrea Epolito. She is a wedding planner who has dedicated her life to celebrating life, luxury, and above all else, love. Andrea specializes in creating extraordinary events for people who lead extraordinary lives. Event designer, author, and educator, Andrea lives in Las Vegas with her husband and their children. Hey, Andrea, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm so excited to chat all about branding today with you, um, but kind of in a different light and in a different perspective than what it's normally discussed in. But before we get into that, um, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the wedding industry? Of course. So I was originally born and raised on Long Island in New York. And when I was younger, I really thought that I was going to be an attorney. The plan was that I would go into criminal law. And when I was about 13 years old, my father's cousin died very unexpectedly. And his daughter had been planning a sweet 16, which I'm Italian back East. This is like, it's our, it's a big deal for us. Um, it's, it's a mini wedding and he, her father died about six weeks before the event. And the family decided that they were going to move forward with having the party anyway. And so the day comes and we're all dressed and we're in the back of the car and we're driving and my parents are talking. And I just kind of said, I Like, I can't believe we're going to a birthday party. Her dad died and we're going to go to this party. It it was just unreal to me that we would be moving forward with something like this. And my father adjusted the rearview mirror and he looked at me and he said, you know, honey, this party is the last gift that her father ever gave her. It's the last thing that they did together. And it's probably the only thing that's been getting her out of bed these last six weeks. He said, so when, when things like this happen, when tragedy happens, you need things to look forward to and things to look back on. He said, that's why we do these things. Because in like in years from now, when the immediate sting of losing her dad has worn off, she'll look back on this party and she'll remember the times that she had with her father. And I, I didn't really understand it. I had a really visceral reaction to it. And at 13, my way of processing it was, well, then I, then I too want to party. 
And so, but I, I know that when she walked in and everybody was clapping and everybody was smiling and there was this moment and she walked through and smiled, I very clearly understood the, the power of an experience and the ability of a moment and an event to be transformative in how you feel because this is a girl who had been heartbroken, but who had something to smile about because she had a room filled with the people she loved most. And so I started planning mine. And this is, you know, 400 years ago before the World Wide Web. And I was at a friend's house and his, I was carrying around a binder and I had like fabric swatches and colors and fonts for invitations. And my friend's mom looked at the binder and she said, you know, you should be a wedding planner. And I said, I don't know what that is. And she said, well, you know, we, we own a limousine company and we participate in this wedding trade show. I think you could really be a wedding planner. And she invited me to go and work. And at that point I was 15 years old and that was all it took. I was hooked and I was never going to do anything else with my life from that minute on. That's a pretty powerful story. And I mean, as sad as its origins, um, you know, came from, it really shed some light on the significance of a wedding day and all of our roles in that wedding day. And it kind of gives you some appreciation for it. Well, and I think that a, a lot of times people like us who are in the industry, people who are striving to make the world a prettier place. I know for me, it's, it's very karmic. I feel like I need to offset the ugly things in the world. And I think that people who've had either a certain amount of trauma or heartbreak or experience, we do feel the need to create the other. So when, if things are hard and they're hard for everybody, if you can counterbalance that with something beautiful or something joy, joyful, if you could offset the sorrow and the difficult times, I think it's a way of, of balancing the scales. And it's, it's been one of the driving things for me. And I know now um, I'm a year and a half past losing my own father. And when I look back and I remember the times that I spent with him planning my own sweet 16, you know, planning Christmases, planning family events, those are the times that really stand out because they were so infused with intention and it was, it was so much about making the world a more beautiful place and bringing people together and celebrating just the relationships. And that's, that's what really kind of stands out. And so I think that a wedding is just that on, on a much bigger scale. Yes, I totally agree. First off, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, I lost oh, my dad you. nine years ago, so I understand a little bit of that. And, um, yes, totally true. Like the first thing that you do when you lose somebody that you love is you go back and, um, reminisce usually via photos or home video, break out the old VHS tape, you know? Um, and so as a cinematographer, my job is to capture these wedding days. And I can only imagine how many, um, how many people, down the road are going to lose loved ones and they're going to have this, you know, professional film created for them that they can go back and review and reminisce on. And same with you, like you're creating the, the actual event itself that, um, holds all of those memories in it. So it is really important. It's actually how I sell video. Um, when, when I talk to people, because I think that 
and granted, I deal with a, a very high-end luxury subset of the the population, but there are still times when there's a question mark as to how valuable is video. And I always say to them, like, this is a rough thing to think about, but if you have parents, if you have grandparents, if you had godparents, someday they're not going to be here. And a photo is great, but the only way that you're going to watch this person move through the world, the only way that you're gonna be able to see them and hear them laugh and, and catch those micro expressions is through video. It's the only thing that will bring them back to life. And it will be so much more meaningful 10, 15, 20 years from now than it is the day that it's recorded. And so you may not live with your video on a daily basis like you do with your photos, but when you need, when you need that video, when you crave that person who no longer exists in a tangible way, video is the only thing that gives it to you. Yes. Couldn't agree more. I know it's, it kind of makes me sad that it's still not viewed as a necessity for a lot of people. Um, I think we're getting there as an industry. I just, we're not quite there yet. Um, but I have friends who chose not to have video for their weddings and they say it's their number one regret. So I try to protect as many of my clients from that, um, feeling of after the wedding, regretting their choices as I can. Absolutely. So you, you talk to your friend's mom. He's, uh, she said you should be a wedding planner. Um, so obviously you've come a long way since that, when you were a teenager, can you tell us, um, a bit about what your business looks like today? So my business turned 10 years old last week and I've been in the industry. I mean, from that first little job, it's been 30 years, but I moved to Vegas in 20, I'm sorry, in 19, (laughs) stuck in the twenties in 1994 with the intention of going to UNLV, getting a job as a wedding planner back then, nobody, I mean, UNLV, I went to meet with my counselor and I said, I want to be a wedding planner. And he was like, Oh, great. We'll put you in catering. And I said, no, I I don't want to be in catering. I want to be a wedding planner. And he looked at me and he was like, that's honey, that's not a real job. And I said, I know, but there's this woman back East and she's doing it for a bunch of celebrities and socialites. I really think it's going to be a thing. And I gave him this whole spiel about how I really thought that being a wedding planner was my path. And he, he put me in the catering track because there was no place else to put me. And so I, I went through that and I worked on nights and weekends in a restaurant that had a special event space that did a lot of large parties. And I went to UNLV and discovered that Las Vegas has a large Mormon population, which I wasn't familiar with, but I learned that they get married early. And so I went to the Mormon student union and I hung up a sign that said, I'll plan your wedding for free. And at 18, 19 years old, I started planning people's weddings, student weddings. I couldn't even go into the Mormon temple. So I was like standing outside holding cupcakes and apple cider and waiting for them to come out. But by 21, I had amassed enough thank you notes and references that I talked my way through Bellagio's security and got into the interview process. And I was hired as a wedding coordinator for Bellagio. So I opened up that property in 1998. 
I went on to do a number of hotels, restaurants, nightclubs. And then 10 years ago, I opened. And when I started the business, the most expensive wedding planner in town had a package that was $3,500 for full wedding planning. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to start at 5,000. And people said, well, why? Like, why would anyone hire you at $5,000? And I said, because I'm the best wedding planner in Las Vegas. And they were like, well, says who? And I said, well, who said I'm not? Like, who said that I'm not the best for the right client, for somebody who cares about atmosphere, for somebody who cares about experience? I knew that I wanted to work with people who cared about being transformative. I knew that I wanted to work with people who wanted to create something different. I knew that I didn't want to deal in volume because I wanted to be able to get very, very close with my clients. And I didn't want to have to deal with a lot of them at once. So I had a very specific client and I really believed that for them, I was the best choice. And I started there and the first year I did one and the second year I did like five and then I jumped to 19 and I was like, never, ever again. And I just, I, I kept looking at the industry saying, if, if I want to have this kind of a lifestyle and if I want to deal with this ideal client, what do I have to look like? What does my brand have to look like? And how do I need to go to market to attract the people that care about the same thing that I care about? And so I made it a point not to follow many other wedding planners because I didn't want to get distracted and to just really drill down and build everything around who my ideal client was. And so today I typically deal with about five to seven couples a year. We have an average spend of about $4,000 a head. It can go as low as $2,500 a head. It can go as high as about um, eleven or twelve thousand dollars a head, but really forty five hundred to six thousand a head is the the place where I tend to live, and we just really have a great time together. The entire company is comprised of myself and me. That's my husband <laughs> is. Uh, I mean, he's a partner. We actually own a couple of different businesses together, all in the hospitality field. We own a hospitality consulting company where we manage venues and we consult for venues throughout the country. And then I have an educational component where I do one-on-one -on -one coaching, mentorship. I have books, I have courses, things like that. And he manages the digital universe in, in that space. But when it comes to my clients and I, our connection is absolute. They never speak to anyone but me. They don't deal with an assistant, an admin. Nobody takes messages for me. I manage all my own social. And that's part of, part of the outrageous promise that I make is that I exist only to bend the universe to your will. And the only way that I can do that is if we have a really symbiotic relationship where I live in your brain and you trust me to download everything that you ever wanted into my head. If I start spreading that out among other people, it diffuses it and that I can't have. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, when you're dealing with a luxury clientele, it is all about trust and, um, you know, they keep their circles small and when you're in their circle, you're in their circle and they're, they're trusting you with a very important moment of their day. So 
Um, I love that. And it's so important for anyone listening. I know that, um, a lot of people are not in the luxury space, although they may striving to get there. Um, but understanding the psychology of, excuse me, the psychology of each kind of level of the market is like, should be the core of your business, understanding where you currently are and where you're headed and kind of, um, crafting your business behind the scenes towards those clients. And like the way they think about the way they spend their money and the way they go about their lives is so important. It's a totally different mindset. And I mean, very, very rarely, I, I'm tempted to say never, but I do believe that in certain markets it's happened. You very rarely start with a client base that spends this kind of money. Unless the, the only way that it really happens is if you've worked for a property or you've worked for a larger company that's established within the luxury market. And so you build up your name and your reputation grandfathered in and attached to someone else. And then those clients that you develop relationships with kind of adopt you and welcome you into the circle. If you don't do that, if you're just starting a business from scratch and you haven't had the opportunity to build like that, nobody starts at this client base. And so one of the things that I did was I said, okay, I know that this is what I want to produce. And Vegas was not known for luxury, Vegas wasn't known for that high-end, high-touch, high-dollar experience. We were known for $1.99 buffets and $2 shrimp cocktail and running through the Elvis Chapel. And so I really studied the market and I looked at everybody that existed and I made a list of people that I believed, number one, were able to produce what I wanted to produce. And number two, that I thought really had an interest in it. And I took each of them to lunch individually. And I said, this is, you know, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. I really believe that we would have a great partnership. And so what I'm willing to do is this, I will invest 10% of whatever a client pays me back into the wedding. And typically it was on a thing. So it would be on custom menus or an upgraded table runner or place card, something that the client at that level didn't put value on, but that I knew would show well. And I asked the vendors, I said, but what I want from you is I want all of my clients to get an upgrade from you because I bring them to you and I'll bring you every client I have. And I built this network of people that wanted to elevate what everyone was doing. And so the photographer at the time gave all of my clients a free engagement session and the florist gave them a free toss bouquet or comped all the boutonnieres so that we had money for other things. And the hotels gave them an extra hors d'oeuvre. So everybody came to the table understanding that we were gonna invest in the client and the experience because it was gonna show so much better. And for a number of years, that really worked. I was getting great photos. We were getting great videos. Everyone was having a great experience. The customers saw a really significant value. I was able to consistently raise my profile, which raised the budgets of the clients that I was working with and everything just elevated up. And then at a, at a certain point through, and I want to be really, really clear through no fault of any one single person, those relationships no longer made sense. And that I think on one hand was a shame. And on the other hand 
was a real big blessing. You have to be able to recognize when your when your vendor mix and when your partnerships are no longer serving the greater good. So I found that as my business changed and my business evolved into the direction that I really wanted it to go, the other businesses were evolving as well and they were growing and they were moving forward, but they were moving towards different goals. And that is sad because these people become friends and I always call them frienders. They're they're vendors, they're friends, they're people that you build your business with. And then all of a sudden coming to the realization of the fact that these business relationships do not serve myself and they don't serve my end user as well was a difficult thing to accept. But it was really important because I needed to make sure that everybody that was on my team shared the vision. And everyone has a right to say, this is what I want my business to look like and feel like. And so the best thing that I could do for everybody at that point was go out and create a new set of partnerships. And it's it's difficult because it does become painful on a personal level for everybody involved, myself included, but I also think that it released everyone from doing work that they really didn't want to do, that they didn't love. And so all of those vendors are now still in business, still successful, doing exactly the kind of work that they want to do. And I'm able to move forward doing the kind of work that I wanted to do. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that it's not personal when those things happen, but it's business. It's personal to my clients and it's sad, but it's business. And I think that we all need to be a lot more honest about when we outgrow or we not even outgrow, but when the parameters of our professional relationships begin to change, it's the same thing with friendship, marriages, love relationships. You have to keep checking in and saying like, hey, are we on the same page? Can we serve each other better if we're not together in this way? Yeah, no, that is, that makes so much sense. Um, I actually recently recorded an episode with Wendy Kay of Birds of a Feather events. And we talked yeah. about finding your um, ride or die creative partners. And this is part of what we talked about. And so um, by the time this goes live, that one will have been published as well. So if you're listening to this and want to go check it out, um, you can totally do that. Um, but no, I love it. Not everyone has the same goals. Not everyone grows at the same rate. And yes, it doesn't serve anybody to cling on to those relationships when it doesn't make sense for anybody involved, but you can still be friends. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, you know, I think it takes a little bit of time because what we all do is so personal in terms of the, the work, why we're doing it. And we get to know each other so well, but you do need to be able to, to separate out how you feel about somebody as a person on the planet and how you feel about them as somebody that you're entrusting with your business. Absolutely. And it's okay when you want to go in different directions. It also happens with clients. You sometimes will start out with a client and you think you're on the same page. And then especially I've seen this during, during COVID, which nobody wants to talk about anymore. I don't want to talk about it anymore, but a lot of, relationships changed between 
the the couple that's getting married. Relationships changed between them and their friends, between them and their employers, them and their families. And so 18 months later, you have a different couple in a different place in their life. And to honor that, you almost have to tell a different story. And sometimes that story no longer makes sense for your business. And so looking at someone and saying, I've taken you as far as I can. I've done the very best that I can, but I can't continue down this pathway with you. It doesn't make sense for you and it doesn't make sense for me. There's an elegant way to do that that is rooted in really and truly wanting the best for somebody, but also acknowledging the fact that going any further just doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. Um, one of the questions that I get asked a lot is if you, um, end a consult with a client before they've even booked you and like, they're eager to book you and you're seeing some red flags, whether that be personality differences, or it could be just like stylistically, um, like, how do you tell them that you don't want to, to book them? And I just say to, um, you know, make it all about them. Like, I don't think I'm the best fit for you. And I think my colleague would serve you far better. Like here's their information. Like you don't have to make it about you. Like, I don't think you're a good fit for me and my business. It can make, you can make it about the client and being in the client's best interest to go with somebody different. A hundred percent. Nobody likes being dumped. Nobody likes, <laughs> no. nobody likes being told like, no, but there's, there's definitely an important part of, of running a business and marketing a business and living your brand and living your truth means saying no to the things that don't serve you and understanding how, when, and why to say no. There's, there's a great power in no because it helps you steer your ship. Absolutely. And for those of us who only take a limited number of weddings a year, I mean, Every client that you take that's not the perfect fit, you are essentially turning down a future client that would be the perfect fit for you. So it's doing your business a disservice, although maybe that paycheck sounds really nice right now, or the couple was super sweet. Um, it is every, every yes is a no for something better down the road. Okay. Um, yes. So I'm going to shift the conversation. I would love to talk about branding a little bit with you. Um, I do this like free, um, workshop where I talk about the four pillars of success of a wedding business and branding is one of those pillars. But I think when most people think about branding, they think about it more in terms of logo website, maybe like online elements. Um, but today I want to talk with you about a whole different area of branding. And that is literally ourselves, like as humans, <laughs> like we live our brand. Um, can you explain what that means and why it's so important? So I believe that the internet has created a scenario where you can no longer hide behind a font. You, you can't hide behind your brand book or your brand colors. The internet has opened up the world in a really, really interesting way in that you are your brand, your brand is you, you are a walking, talking, 24-hour-a-day advertisement. And this upcoming generation specifically places a lot of value on knowing who they're working with, knowing the person behind the brand, making sure that their values are aligned, making sure that they care about the same things, making sure that they live the same kind of lifestyle. Now, to a lot of people who want to get into luxury, 
but who say like, well, I don't have the money to do these things, or I don't have the money to shop like my clients shop. I don't have the money to, to have a private jet or a private plane. My clients certainly do, but I, Andrea Polito, don't. That said, I make sure I put myself in a position, in a position to understand it and to have some type of an experience that correlates to it. And so when it comes to living your brand, I think the first thing that you need to do is make, do a client avatar, which is something that I'll do every couple of years. I'll revisit my client avatar. And I start with some very, very broad-based items. How old are they? Where do they live? What do they do for a living? How much money do they make? How do they make their money? Are they employees or are they entrepreneurs? What kind of places do they vacation? What kind of books do they read? Their, what's their average social life look and feel like? Once I have that, then I'll go through and I will deep dive into who they are a little bit more. I'll take what it is that I've, that I've put out about them and I, I lay it out on a board. And then I say, okay, based on this, how do I believe these people see the world? What is it about the world that they believe is true? What is it that they wish were true? What are their motivations? What are they afraid of? And I don't care how successful you are. Everybody has an aspiration to do or be or grow into a different way. And so what is it that this couple and this person aspires to? And I take all of that and I look at it. And now is where I start getting into drawing a line and pulling a thread from myself to my ideal client. And it's not about trickery and it's not about pretending, but it's really finding the places where we are aligned. So if there are places, if there are brands that they shop at, if there are cars that they drive, if there are places that they vacation, I'm looking for similarities. Even if it's not a part of my daily activity, something that I can relate to. And I'm pulling all of those pieces out and I'm looking at how my persona and my lifestyle and who I am can connect with my ideal client to make them feel more understood, to make them feel more at ease, to make them feel as if we are one and the same. And I put all of that out and I say, okay, that helps me design my personal lifestyle. So when I, uh, to give an example, I'll look at a client and I'll get their Instagram before we meet and I'll see what shoes are they wearing? What, what brand purse are they carrying? What color do they wear when they post on Instagram? Are they head to toe black? Do they wear a lot of patterns? What is it about them? And then I, I pull my favorite images and I pull the images that they've posted that have the most engagement from their followers, the most likes. And I take those into my closet and I design my outfit for our first consultation. Because if my client carries a YSL bag and I carry a YSL bag, if my client is wearing all black from head to toe and I'm wearing all black, just the subconscious act of mirroring them, when I show up, I look like I make sense 
in their life. I look like somebody that they would be friends with. And it's not something that I'm, it's not sleight of hand. It's, we both like this brand. This is something we had in common. So I make sure I'm showcasing it. We both have these outfits. If they are people who travel all over the place, I make sure that I understand something about a place that they've been. If they eat in certain restaurants, I make sure that I at least have gone there to grab a drink at the bar or an appetizer. Because when we talk, there has to be a sense of commonality. And so I'm always looking for ways to connect with my clients on a personal basis that has nothing to do with the wedding. Because we all do pretty weddings. We all do, quote unquote, good work. Do you like me? Do you trust me? Do you believe that I'm a good custodian of your memories? Do you believe that I see the world the way that you do? That's what closes the sale from a branding perspective. That is so powerful. Um, I love like the high level of intention and that you, um, you definitely pointed out that you're not tricking them. Like these things already belong in your closet. As far as like the outfit goes, you're just carefully curating, um, the pieces that you think will align with them because you're so right. Like when, when we recognize ourselves in another person, it automatically creates a level of trust that would not exist if we didn't like recognize part of ourselves in them. And so you're just intentionally making sure that, um, that comes through. And I think that it's, it does play a part though, in all of the other decisions that I make. It, it absolutely played a part when I was looking to get a new car. I've been driving, I've been a Lexus driver for about 14 years. My husband and I have almost only driven Lexus, but I started to notice that my clients were driving the same three or four brand cars. Every single time I met with somebody, they were always driving either an Audi or a Tesla or a Mercedes. I kept seeing these over and over again. And I started, and granted, my clients also drive like Rolls Royce and Bentley and Aston Martin. Those were not in my price point, but they're everyday cars. I was like, okay, this is interesting. What does it tell me about them? Tesla drivers care about the environment to a decent extent, but they also care about the recognition and the brand understanding. But having an electric car is a big talking point for them. Audi drivers really love German engineering and German engineering in a car is very, very different from other types of setups. And I started looking at all of the different things, why they drove Mercedes, what they were looking for in tech. And so we ended up switching to Audi e-trons. They're Audis, they're German, they're completely electric. And ever since I got that car, every meeting that I've gone to, a client has asked about it and a client has mentioned it. And it's become a talking point. Why? Because we share similar values, because we want the same thing, because we care about the same experience when you're driving. What does it say about you? And people are, I know people who are like, that's absurd. It's ridiculous that you track your client's driving profile. But for me, it makes absolute sense. I, I, I track nail color. 
I track shoe. I track workout regimens. I track where they eat. I'm constantly observing what my ideal client is doing, how and where they're doing it and trying to figure out why. And then if it speaks to me, I adopt it into my life. If it doesn't speak to me, then I act as if it doesn't exist. There's a lot of things that my clients do that do not resonate with me as a person. And sometimes things that I outwardly, you know, and and wholeheartedly don't subscribe to and don't agree with. And when that's the case, I I put it to the side and I ignore it and I act like it doesn't exist. Because if it's not a point of commonality, then I stay away from it because I don't want, I'm really always concerned about breaking the suspension of disbelief. I'm, I'm always making sure that I'm always on and that there's, there's nothing abrasive that comes across in terms of who I am. And rather, especially in the beginning, as we get further down the line, you become more human, you become more at ease with your couples, you start having real conversations about other things. But in the beginning, at the surface level, I only want to glide. I I don't want any friction. And so I avoid anything that breaks character of who I'm supposed to be in their life. I love that. What did you say? Breaking the suspension of disbelief. All that could, I can think about was like when you're in Disneyland and it feels so magical, but then you see like a piece of trash on the ground and it totally like brings you out of the experience. Like that's essentially, I mean, that's a very like, <laughs> you can tell I have a three but, and a five I mean, year old. Imagine from if that, Mickey but... Mouse took his hat off in front of your kids and you realize he's some 19 year old intern from the local college. Yes. Yes. We want to, we want to keep up make... the magic. <laughs> Yeah, it it wouldn't make sense. It's why so many Hollywood stars become very protective of their personal life because when you get known more for who you are at Starbucks or at Jones on 3rd, you can no longer portray the character that that people pay to connect with. And we we are supporting actors in the experience that our clients are having. And we have to remember that it's our job to toe that line. We're not, we're not friends. I, I actually said this to a client the other day, and at first she was really offended. Um, but she, I think she, she gets it now. She said something and I was like, okay, just to be like, we're not friends. And she was like, what? And I said, I'm very, very clear about my role. I am the help. I look like you, I act like you, I talk like you, I dress like you, but make no mistake about it. If something goes wrong, I'm an employee and I'm the help. When your wedding is done and I've delivered your, she's like, well, you're friends with so many of your past brides. I'm like, I am. And when I've delivered the last video, when I've done my last submission, when your last print is hanging on your wall and it's an archival art piece and you're thrilled and we're done, then I become your friend. But until that happens, I'm very, very clear about the fact that I am the help. I work for them. And no matter how much I like them or how much they think they like me, when painted into a corner, when anything goes wrong, it's my job to fix it. I'm not going to be in the bridal dressing room ruminating with you and talking about it. I'm going to be on my hands and knees, scrubbing the floor, readhesing, you know, vinyl, and sewing up the back of your dress if it pops, because that's my job. 
we don't get to be friends until long after the wedding is done. Yes. No, that is so true. Um, I'm one of the few people in my, um, my world of videographers that like, doesn't like necessarily care to have a relationship with my clients. Like if I build one, that's totally fine. Um, but like, that's not one of like the most important things to me personally, as it is for other people. A lot of people say it's all about relationships, but to me, like, it's more about the art. Like I just want to show up and like create something spectacular for them that they're going to love. Um, but I don't, like I'm very picky with my inner circle and I don't need any more friends. Like that sounds really harsh, but it's true. <laughs> so, um, for those of you listening who you feel the same way, just know that you're not alone. Like it's okay to not like be besties with your clients. Like that's totally acceptable. Um, uh, we are working for them. Um, so I'm trying to think I'm, of like, I'm paid to be your bestie. I'm paid to be yes. your bestie. In box. I'm, <laughs> I am an unpack, ready to go, ready to wear best friend that cares about you and your wedding as much as you do. And, but that I think that sometimes, and I've seen this with other wedding planners, they start to behave like a bridesmaid and they forget that they're supposed to be the expert in the room. And the number of times that I've seen like a wedding planner take shots with the bridal party, Ooh. I would literally melt inside. I would, I would, quite literally implode and lose my mind because 10 minutes after that shot, if the DJ plays the wrong song, guess whose butt it is. It's mine. And then I've been drinking with you and now all credibility is lost and you don't recover from something like that. And it takes one, it takes one story. It takes one bad experience. It takes one bride telling a catering manager and everything that I've built for the last 10 years just, you know, it's very ephemeral. It goes away really quickly. And I can't allow that. Yeah. There's definitely a line of professionalism that we all need to uphold 100%. Um, so living your brand, I'm thinking of like very practical and like tangible, easy to do ways we can like all go about this literally like today we can go make this happen for ourselves. And the ones that are coming up in my mind are like wardrobe on not only a wedding day, but an engagement session or a meeting that we may have with our clients. If, um, if people are still doing in-person meetings post COVID, I don't know if that's still a thing anymore. Um, that, and, um, I would say like overall demeanor, um, like what we say, how we say it, what we don't say. So can we talk about like wardrobe choices and how to kind of curate something that, um, really reflects our brand, but also makes the client feel comfortable? Sure. Um, leggings aren't pants. <laughs> I know that's, I know that's a big thing that people disagree with me on. I don't care. Leggings aren't pants. They have no place in a professional at a luxury level. They, they don't have a place in a luxury market. Um, I think it goes beyond just when you're meeting with your clients and I've told this story before. So if anyone's listening and, and they've heard it, um, I had my tea, I had a root canal and my mom said, I will go to the store for you. And I was like, no, because I'm a big girl and I believe that I can do everything. And why do I need to put my mother out? And I had my, my little girl who at the time was like still a babyish in the seat. And I had my son walking next to me and my face is swollen and numb and I'm basically drooling and I'm walking through Trader Joe's and I see this woman looking at me. And my first instinct is she's creepy and she's looking at my kid. 
And I keep walking. And as I go around, I notice she's looking at me again. And I'm like, that's weird. And as I come around the third time, and I swear to you, I'm in knockoff Uggs from, from Walmart, I think. I mean, we're going back 10 years. I'm, I'm drooling. I have no makeup on. I have no bra on. And she comes over to me and she goes, excuse me, are you Andrea Polito, the wedding planner? And before I can say no, my son goes, yes, she is. And I'm like, shut up. And she's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't know if that was you at first. I thought it was, but I'm, I'm like a huge fan. Can I just show you something on Instagram? And she takes out her phone and she starts showing me my own work that she's planned and tagged. And I'm dying because I am so not in a place to do this. And I look at her and the rec- like the realization that she sees me like this. And I have every right to be human, but I don't need to put my humanity on display at the grocery store. And I, a lot of people struggle with that, that you always have to be on. But I really believe that living your brand means that your brand is you, you're your brand, and yes, you are always on. And she's like, you know what? I'm sorry. I think I caught you at a bad time. And I was like, totally fine. She's like, no, I, when, I'm, when I'm engaged and I'm ready, I'll, I'll text you. And I was like, great. I went back, I looked her up on Instagram. She had been a massive, massive follower. I'd post, she'd immediately like, she would comment. She was super hyper-engaged. And it slowed after that. And I never got a call about anything. Now, maybe our businesses, maybe my business changed. Maybe our visions didn't align. Maybe she never got engaged. But I can tell you, she's not as engaged with me as she once was. Because the way that I presented in that very human, regular moment of my personal life broke trust because what I told her by having no bra, no makeup, no, no polish was that everything she saw on Instagram was a lie. And I have never, ever done that again. So the, the biggest thing for me would be making sure that whenever I step out of my house, I would be okay if I ran into a client. It doesn't mean I'm dressed to the nines, but it means that if I'm wearing gym clothes, that my gym clothes are cleaned and that they fit well and that they are somewhat stylish and on brand to who I am. That if I am out with my kids or with my husband, or even if I'm just taking them to the park, that I'm wearing sunglasses that reflect my brand, that I'm wearing sneakers that reflect my brand, that I never go out braless anymore, even if I've just had surgery, that I always have my hair at least pulled back. I, I always have to look like I align even in my off time. So that's, that's the first thing is making sure that you are always polished, appropriately polished for any situation that you're putting yourself in because you never know when and where you're gonna run into a client. The second thing is making sure that anything that you have is well-kept. So if I pull up someplace and there's a hair and makeup artist and their car is filthy, if your car is filthy, then your brushes are probably filthy because you don't know how to take care of your stuff. And so that's something that I, I look at. 
Are your shoes clean? Are your, is your purse clean? Is your car clean? Are you rummaging around? Are things well organized? Those are very kind of subconscious indications of who somebody is. So making sure that whatever you're carrying with you, whether it's a purse or a briefcase or a backpack is well organized, making sure that you don't have threads hanging, making sure that you don't have scuff marks, making sure that everything is always cleaned and polished so that if somebody sees it, it shows that you know how to take care of your stuff, which means you'll take care of their stuff. If you can't take care of your own personal belongings, you will never care to take care of somebody else's. So that's a very big deal. Um, definitely in terms of the places that you go and the place and the experiences that you set up for yourself. You may not be in a position to shop at Louis Vuitton on a regular basis, but you should still go in and get to know the salespeople. You should still go in and buy a keychain or a paperweight because you need to understand the way that they package it. You need to understand how it go, how it feels to go in and buy something from Dior or from Chanel. It is a totally different experience than buying something at Michael Kors, which is a totally different experience from buying something at Target. And so you need to understand the same experience, the, the experience that your client has on a day-to-day -day basis has to feel very organic and very authentic to you because you have to have shared that experience. Um, going places to eat. If you can't afford to go to a restaurant that is super, super expensive and have an entire meal there, you can go to the bar and have a glass of wine and get to know the bartender. It's just about every day trying to say on a regular basis, what is my client's worldview and how can I find a way to share that? I love that. That is very tangible, very practical and, um, attainable for everybody. I mean, I drive a Honda minivan, so definitely not, <laughs> not a BMW or something, but, um, I do make it a point to, you know, check out the spa every once in a while. Um, do like you said, um, you know, my, the mall local to me has all of the um, Chanel, you know, like the, the high-end brands. And I do, I wander in there. Um, and I make sure I look, <laughs> I look like I belong there. I don't go wearing, uh, jeans and a sweatshirt. Um, but it is so important because you learn so much from the way that these employees interact with their, um, potential clientele. And it's easier to, um, kind of mimic and pick up on things once you've experienced it, like you said, um, rather than trying to create something from scratch that you have no idea how it's supposed to go. It's just easier. It just makes more sense if you've done it yourself. And I know that I've, I've worked really hard to be able to put myself in a position to afford a lifestyle that I wanted to live. Um, not everybody, and that's something else, not everybody wants this lifestyle. Not everybody wants to live in, in a crazy house, in a crazy neighborhood, or drive a crazy car. Not everybody cares about buying luxury handbags or certain pieces of, of jewelry. Every one of us has our own internal compass and value proposition. And I've got spectacular friends whose work I really enjoy and I really respect. And they don't work with the same clients that I have because they don't share those aspirations and, 
and that lifestyle, they are the very best at what they do for a client who's spending fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars because their lifestyles and their values align. They would never ever want to be taking on a client that's spending two and a half, three million dollars would would be so uncomfortable for them. They would not know how to spend that money because that's not their worldview. Whereas taking on a client that has a $75,000 budget for me is practically impossible because it's not what I specialize in. And it's not to say that the work isn't good or isn't valuable. One is not better or worse than the other. It's about being the right brand for the right client at the right time of both of your lives. And if this is how you live on a daily basis, and this is how your client lives, you will have a much, you'll be much more successful, you'll be much more profitable, and you'll be much happier if you acknowledge who you are truly as a person and you look for people who appreciate that rather than trying to be something you're not, because then you're you're always chasing. I'm completely comfortable with my client base because I understand and share their worldview. I would much rather spend $6,000 on a purse, but no, I don't have to buy another black purse for the next 10 or 15 years than have to replace one every six months because it falls apart. It's just, it's a different place. And I'm also willing to work and save money for 15 years to be able to buy that purse. Some people think that's crazy. In my head, it makes perfect sense. If it doesn't make perfect sense for you, there's nothing wrong with that. But but just figure out who you are and match your business to work with those types of people. Yes. And, you know, the same thing goes, a lot of people want to do destination work or, um, you know, like adventure elopements is like a really big segment of the market right now especially after COVID. But, um, you know, if you have anxiety flying with your gear or whatever it is, like maybe that's not an authentic, um, way to run your business or thing for you to chase after. So it, this is not just go for the luxury space for any of you listening who are like, that's not what I want to do. Like this literally goes to anyone in any segment of the market, like really dissecting what it's like to work in that area of the market with that kind of clientele and seeing if it does in fact align with you. Um, I thought yeah, I wanted I to do like adventure elopements and I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to be hiking up a mountain at five in the morning. Like that is no, thank you. <laughs> like I, that's the thing I have, I have two small kids and like they're eight and 12 and they're wonderful. And I love them. And I travel quite a bit for speaking and education and consulting. I don't want to be on the road once or twice a month trying to plan a destination wedding. It's not, it's not something that I enjoy. And because I don't enjoy it, I'll never be great at it. Even if I fake it once in a while for the right client, will I go anywhere in the world? Yes. But do I bill myself as a destination experience planner? No, I specialize in this. This is what I do. This is what I do. Well, this is all I do. And if you want that, great. If you want something else, you better sell me on how and why it impacts my life in a way that makes it worthwhile. Because just getting to say that I getting to say that I went to Italy to do a wedding has no value for me if that's not what I want to do over and over again. And a one-off just doesn't feel special. It, like it, it doesn't feel like it, there's no growth for me in that. I only ever want to do the thing that I love most. And the thing that I love most is 
creating extraordinary experiences for people who lead extraordinary lives in my market. Um, this is very impactful, very eye-opening and inspiring. But as we wrap up this episode, if you have any last minute um, tips or pieces of advice for somebody who is aspiring to kind of reach a similar level that you're at, I would love for you to leave that with our listeners. I would say to just really, the, the biggest thing, the biggest differentiator that has been the most success in my industry is education. Um, every bit of growth that I've had has come from some sort of education and not just in the wedding space. I try to read about three, sometimes four books a month. I read books on psychology. I read books on luxury buying habits. I read books on investments. Reading business books, reading personal development books has been huge because it keeps me sharp. It keeps me thinking. It gives me interesting things to think about. It gives me interesting things to say. I probably spend more money on education, on coaches, on courses than anyone else that I know because I just love it. And I think that I can learn from anybody. I really do spend time studying my clients. I ask more questions than anyone is normally comfortable with, but building out your own internal kind of path of education, figuring out where the gaps are, whether it's in interior design, whether it's in human psychology, whether it's in sales skills. And with this costs you nothing but time. It take an hour away and don't watch the next episode of Bridgerton. Stop your Netflix and chill for an hour early every night and just learn, learn from everybody, learn everything. And then just study your clients, study the person that you want to work with the most. And don't ever be afraid to ask questions of another professional, of a, of a colleague, of somebody who maybe does something totally different from you, but constantly, constantly be learning and put it into practice. And if you make a mistake, honestly, it's okay. I've made tons of them. So just, just keep trying, keep practicing and refine who you are as a business person, because I think that we're all in this because we're creative, but really sharpen your mind in terms of running your business like a business and apply that to your personal life. And when you get into that vibe and you're in that zone where everything flows because it's real, that's when, that's when the magic happens because people like recognizes like, and you'll find that it's a much smoother transition because who you are is exactly who your clients need to be and you're doing it without trying. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I'm on a mission to inspire my fellow wedding creatives to take their businesses to that next level, and I can't do it without you. It would mean the world to me if you would please leave a review for the podcast and share it on your Instagram stories. Just don't forget to tag me at the Level Up Co. so I can see it. Doing these things will help other wedding professionals find the show so we can all raise the industry up together one person at a time. Until next time, friends, just keep pushing forward.